0: Well well enough? Doing good? Get some grapes and some little mini donuts, little happy things. So what we're doing here in Sunday School over the course of the summer is we're trying to lay a foundation for faith. What's going to happen in the fall is there's going to be an opportunity for folks to be confirmed when uh, Bishop Breed loves in town. But whether you go through that um, kind of ceremonial recognition of your faith in Christ or not... We just wanted to kind of lay, have, kind of re- circle back to kind of lay this foundation of things. And so we've talked about a number of key concepts that really undergird everything. We talked about what, what what is the gospel. That it really the central proclamation of the gospel is? Jesus. That Jesus is king. Blendy knows. The fellow's heard this about 400 times. Um, Jesus became king. He is king, but he became king on his, through his death and resurrection. We talked about the spirit-filled life. We talked about the scriptures. We've talked about assurance of salvation. How do we really know that we are his? And today I want to add one more kind of ingredient to the stew here as we are building. What are the fundamental things we got to get in place um, that, we, that we that we must understand? And John? But, uh, Jesus died, I to in the wait, wait, go. you've got to go louder. I can barely make you out.
1: Jesus not only became king, but he uh, took the punishment I deserved for my sins.
0: This is correct, yes. So so that central claim of the gospel, what happened is that Jesus became king, and it is in his sin-atoning, Satan-defeating death that he becomes king, and all of these benefits flow out of that. Among them, that all of our sins are imputed to him, and his righteousness is credited to us. All sorts of good things. Absolutely true. <coughs> so let's talk about one more thing. We're going to talk about, well, I won't tell you what we're going to talk about. I'll show it to you. So grab your book, grab your Bible. And go to Titus chapter 1. And I have taught this a couple different times here over the years. And so it might be that you know the punchline. And if so, don't ruin the story for anybody else. Okay, so just bear with me here. I want you guys, I, I, I always, wherever possible, I find that in my life, I remember things better when I discover them myself. And so I'd love to like, kind of lead you on a process of self discovery and see this. So we're going to be in Titus. In your New Testament, all the T-books are together and in alphabetical order. Not on purpose, that's just the way it worked out. So you'll find Timothy and Timothy and, well, first you'll have Thess-Thess, Tim-Tim, Titus. And Titus chapter 1 has a weird little marker. Something strange happens that I want you guys to take a look at, okay? And I'll, I'll kind of, rev- we'll, we'll make this all clear by the time we're done, but I don't want to give away too much on the front end. So I want you to listen to this. And again, if you've heard me teach this, just let somebody else kind of like, tease this out. I'm going to read the beginning of Titus and I'm going to say something strange. It says Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Here's verse four. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay? That's the opening. Um, very similar. Paul tends to open his open his letters with you know this little bit of a greeting. He's a little bit formulaic. But there's something here in the opening of Titus that completely breaks the pattern. That is a complete alteration from what Paul always does. Did anybody notice? what? Does it, did It, were you, it was right a point where I was reading that, where you were expecting the next word, but then the next word didn't come, where something was off kilter from Paul's pattern. <laughs> but you know the story, right? So poor Donnie's just bubbling to say. Okay. Anything cut you, strike you as odd here? Yeah, Joyce? grace and peace. Yes, the grace and peace. Okay, and Joyce has been going to this church for two weeks, so she's definitely not cheating. So what 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 about that joyce no oh, i it later did you say no grace and peace i thought, I thought it was okay earlier but now i think okay yes Oh, okay so you're not only you're not cheating you you haven't figured it out yet but but you're so close okay so joyce says no grace and peace and what she's what that betrays i think is that joyce knows that paul begins all of his letters with an invitation to grace and peace, a, not an invitation to grace and peace, a, a blessing. He's, he's giving away grace and peace in all of his letters, okay? In fact, let's take that. I'll, I'll take that as a sufficient start. Go back, and we're going to look at We won't do them all, but we can do any of them. Go back to what's Paul's first letter in the New Testament, you guys? Romans. Uh, yeah, okay, well, hey, not, not the sequence that they were written, but the first one in the order that they're recorded, Romans, okay? So go to Romans, and he's going to say this in verse 7. Oh Romans 1. So Romans 1, verse 7, he's going to say, grace and peace. There it is, Joyce. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It seems a little bit vanilla. We hear it all the time, but there it is. Go to 1 Corinthians. Again, chapter 1. This time it's verse 3. 1 Corinthians 1, 3. You guys find it? Who's faster do you think? People with books or people with phones? <laughs> Which is quicker? I don't know. <laughs> First Corinthians one, three. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You got it? So there we go. Second Corinthians chapter one. This one's gonna be in verse two. You got it? Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can anybody without turning to Galatians 1, guess what you're going to find there? (laughs) Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think I'm making it up, I'm not. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, and he's going to say this. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Paul begin every single one of his letters? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you go to Colossians, just for the sake of it, just go to Colossians chapter 1. And if you read your Bible in verse 2, it's going to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father, full stop. But if you have a footnote and you look down at the bottom, that footnote is going to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, which either means that he did or that whoever was translating the Bible thought that, or copying it, thought that he did because they're so used to the pattern. This is Paul's patternistic way of opening letter, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time he always does it until we get to Titus. So go back to Titus. What do we find there? I promise you we're going somewhere. Just stay with me. Titus 1. So Joyce, you didn't find it initially, but you found it later. It's in verse 4. Can you give us real loud verse 4?
2: Jesus our Savior, not Lord
0: Jesus. That's right. Grace and peace to you. Well, he's going to say grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's different. Okay? It's not what he normally does. Now, you could say, okay, well, big, big deal. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. What's the deal? Here, here's why that's a big deal. Every single one of Paul's letters, he always calls Jesus Lord at this point, every time. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. In this time, He calls him Savior instead of Lord. Now, maybe he's just switching it up, okay? Maybe. But he's absolutely not just switching it up. This is an intentional omission. This is an intentional change. This is an intentional substitution. Here's how we know that. Paul calls Jesus Lord, Kyrios, 257 times in all of his letters. It is by far his favorite title for Jesus. Over and over and over again. And this is not... This is good news. Jesus is Lord. This is what we mean we say the central claim of the gospel is that Jesus has become king. He has become Lord. He has become curious. He reigns and he rules. And he's been granted the cosmos to rule over. He is the Lord. 257 times Paul calls Jesus Lord in all of his letters. You want to know how many times he calls Jesus Lord in, in Philemon, which is this long? Six times, okay? In his, he can't even get through a paragraph without calling Jesus Lord six times in Philemon. How about Titus? How many times did he called Jesus Lord in Titus? Goose egg, baby. Not once. Not here in his formulaic greeting. He specifically avoids it. And throughout the entire letter, he, he purposefully, intentionally, and utterly avoids ever calling Jesus Lord any time in the book of Titus. It's very unusual. This is extremely rare. I mean, it's not only rich, it's the only, it's the only instance of in, in his writings where he doesn't repeatedly do this. Jesus is not, he's never called Lord, though he is the Lord. We're not, we're not, Paul's not denying that he is Lord. He's just not drawing that idea forward. Okay? He calls him Lord 257 times in all of his writings, at least six times in each writing, but zero in Titus. That should be, that's noteworthy. This is enough, this is anomalistic enough that it's probably meaningful. So far, so good. What does he like to call Jesus instead of Lord? Save. Savior. Now, here's what's weird. He calls Jesus Lord 257 times in all of his writings. He only calls him Lord twelve. I mean, calls him Savior twelve times throughout his total his total writing. He's 257 Lords to a dozen Saviors. That's really interesting. I think that that, that is such an incredible, you know, imbalance towards Lord over Savior. Of course, he's always describing him. He is the Savior, and Paul's never going to deny that. But his emphasis in writing overwhelmingly is towards Lord and away from Savior. However, in Titus, in this singular letter, of the dozen times that he calls Jesus Lord, half of them are right here. So he's 6 out of 12 Savior. Did I just mangle that? Did I just make that? I screwed that up, didn't I? A dozen Saviors, 257 Lords, half of the Saviors are in Titus why now did, i'm trying to make a case for you that there's something going on here that he's very very intentionally gonna gonna over emphasize well not overemphasize. He's, he's gonna give the dramatic emphasis to christ as savior 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 and kind of keep behind his back the fact that jesus is lord that he is king so the question is if you if you accept that he did so and he did and if you accept that it's meaningful that he did so well, then our job for the rest of this hour is to figure out what's the meaning. Why would you do that? Why would you avoid calling Jesus Lord? Why would you be so emphatic in reminding us every chance you get that he's Savior, in a, in a way that's dramatically uncharacteristic, what's that all about? So let's take some theories. Why would he do that? Why is that the particular theme here? What's that, Stuart?
1: Something going on wherever Titus is
0: Okay, that's good. Okay, so this is great. So here, okay, here's what here's what Stuart just is doing. Whether you guys, whether he knows it or not, so what's our genre? Oh, you say no, I know. I
1: mean, he's he's writing to edify.
0: Yes. His,
1: his church plants wherever they are. So Titus is obviously somebody's trying to instruct. Yes. Something's going on wherever Titus. Is.
0: Yes. Okay, but here's what you here's what you know. Here's why you've got good hermeneutics, Stuart. Is that the genre? of... Uh, Genre is the style of writing. The, so you, you, you read E.E. E. Cummings differently than you read, you know, your DVD user's manual, right? They're different genres of writing, okay? The genre for this is, what is just an epistle, That's just a fancy-pants word for... One second, Mike, let me finish this, and I'll call on you. It's a fancy word for letter, okay? When you read letters, when you read epistles, what you're necessarily getting is half of the conversation. Uh, you, somebody's on the phone, and I'm listening to what they're saying... But I don't know what they're hearing, and I don't know what happened before they picked up the phone to call, what was going on. And so whenever you read a letter, and what you're doing is you're beginning to reverse engineer it. This letter is not just written out into some, you know, into some vacuum. It's written to a specific people at a specific time who are facing particular problems, have particular questions. There's something going on, and Paul's responding to that. And so what you're, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, based on the solution that he's proffering, What must have been the problem? You reverse engineering to what was going on there. And that is exactly what we should do when we come to the scriptures, is ask, like, what? This is responding to what? What's the circumstance? What's happening on the ground that would make this make sense? If we're going to understand what it means for us, the first step is to understand what it meant for them. And that's the work that you're suggesting we do. Michael.
1: Similar to Stuart, I was going to say that maybe it has something to do with Titus himself. Not necessarily where he's at, but just his relationship.
0: Okay, great. So, so Michael is adding into this that it's not just, he's writing to a group of people. So that might be like the city or the island of Crete or it might be these, but, it, but it's also, is he writing to the church or is he writing to the head of the church, right? So you kind of have these concentric circles. Is there something that Titus needs? Is there something that the church needs? Is there something that the city needs? And we, we might want to be concerned about all of those different levels as we try to reverse engineer it. Okay, excellent work. So what might be going on for a group of people who desperately need to know that Jesus is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, so much so that we're going to just shh, just keep it to yourself for a minute. He's Lord, but we're not going to talk about that right now. What kind of circumstance might be going on here? Yeah, Judy.
2: Well, Lord implies somebody in sort of over authority.
0: Okay, so, so good, but I missed one word that I really want to hear. Um, so Judy just said, and you'll have to fill in my blank here, that the no- notion of lordship kind of carries with it this concept of authority. Somebody's over you, someone is in, in charge, and I, 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 did I hear a word compulsive or some, some civ? What? I said repulsive. Repulsive, okay. So they so this might be a group of people that are very prickly at the idea of authority, and so we're going to be very gracious to not be overbearing about that. Am I, am I capturing you right? Okay, great. This is the work that we want to do. Like, let's theorize. Let's figure out what would be the circumstance that would make you say, "Savior, Savior, Savior." Is it that these people are prickly about authority, and we don't want to like aggravate that to them? It's a great th- opening theory, Joyce. Uh,
2: maybe they've got people who are very legalistic among
0: them. Okay. Something about the circumstance. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so could it be that there's a very legalistic people? So this is kind of like the vibe that you get out of Galatians, right? So in Galatia, they they had kind of abandoned this gospel of grace by faith that invites all people of all races, and were embracing instead this uh, kind of racially motivated religious ritualism that you got to be circumcised, you got to become a Jew. Is there a similar vibe here? This is certainly not the only thing going on in Galatia. So is he trying to skirt around? sense of uh, a legalism which is similar not not unrelated to what judy is saying great these are you guys are doing great work what else what might be going on here that could prompt this kind of a this kind of a intentional literary discipline that paul is writing with yeah sarah lynn the relationship okay so what about what what relationship like
2: the relationship
0: Okay. So I think is what you're saying that what he's tr- he, he's making this decision because he's trying to emphasize the idea that we are in a relational covenant with Jesus, not that we are like, you know, vassals serving under some dictator. Is that what you what you're saying?
2: The intimacy within that.
0: Yes. Okay, great. So he want, so perhaps he, where he just wants to make sure that they understand that there's something warm and there's something loving and there's a relationship here, and that's great. Now, what, what, here's the problem with all of these theories, is that why doesn't he do that when he writes to the Corinthians? Why doesn't he do it when he writes to the Galatians? Why doesn't he do it when he writes to the, you know, who did I just not say? The Thessalonians. It's curious, what's going on here that makes this be a particular, very unusual focus? Because everything you're saying is true, but they're always true. So what's up with that, right? John?
1: One of the things, uh, we've got uh, Paul's own description of creeds in uh, verses uh, 10 through uh, 12, Uh, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should One of them themselves, one of themselves a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, Evil beasts, lazy dog buttons, committing against their Are This testimony is true.
0: Yes. Okay, this is this is a great insight. So John is John is going beyond just like trying to imagine the reverse engineering, but he's saying, well, give me more data, right? And the other thing that one another piece of data we get in the book is that the place where he's riding to, this particular island of Crete, is like a dirty hole. Right? So, in case you couldn't hear him, he says, um, he quoting this passage, that there are many rebellious people, deceivers, talkers. Um, creeds themselves are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So, this is an island, this is a community of people where there's, sin is rampant. And perhaps that's a clue that's going to help us understand what's going on here. So, it's excellent, very good. Share, you want to add something too? I was
1: saying maybe he's trying to counter what false prophets are.
0: Okay, great. So is he trying to counter false prophets? Is there something going on in this community that he wants to stay as far away from this as he can? And we'll, we will see them do things like that. We'll see that when Paul's in Thessalonica, um, he makes... He, he, okay, is Paul's normal mode to live off support. People are giving him money so he can be, co- commit himself full-time to doing the work of the ministry, to preaching the gospel, evangelism and discipleship full-time. He doesn't have a side gig. But when it comes to Thessalonica... He gets a job. Not because he doesn't need the money, not because he doesn't um, deserve the money, but because in this particular community, not working will feed their own laziness. So he's working not for the money, but for the model to show them what it's like. And so perhaps Paul's got something going on here that he's gonna like, he's gonna modify his message because he knows that his people that he's writing to need something in particular because of their own weaknesses or frailties or misunderstandings, okay? These are you guys are crushing it. Very very good. Was there a hand? Who else did so I see? It. Suzanne, and then back to Judy.
2: Based on the, that first that ten, they're insubordinate and it lazy. Yeah. Says here that um, they they need to hear about a savior who's coming mm-hmm. to save them from their sins that they may not even recognize.
0: Yes. So there's something peculiar about this people. Right? And maybe in light of what John is seeing here, what you're pointing to, there's something peculiar that they need to know about a Savior, perhaps. And so Paul is writing to the pastor, Titus, to say, and he's framing, he never tells Titus what to say and what not to say in this way, but the model that he's giving to Titus perhaps is going to have a secondary effect in the community where he's working, because they, in a peculiar way, need to know the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior. Not a bad guess. Okay. And Judy. Judy. I was just
2: gonna say, if, if, for example, if you have someone who had an abusive father.
0: Excellent. Okay, so again, what Judy's saying is that we're, we're always going to customize, we should always customize our presentation. The way that th- the words that I might use that might sound sweet to your ears might in fact sound bitter to yours based on the experience that you have had. And so if I know you well, I want to frame things in a way that the beauty and the sweetness and the goodness of the gospel is made evident and is powerful and has the greatest impact on your life. Okay, fantastic job. Now, let me give you one more piece of data or several more pieces of data that are all on the same line. Um, because I think this shapes and affects how we think about this. By the way, let's do this real quick. Run through Titus, and we're going to show you where all the saviors are. So if you've got a print Bible, and you want to underline this, and you can notice this again, it's chapter 1, verse 3. The preaching entrusted me by the command of God, our Savior. It's Titus 1, verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you keep scrolling through or turning the pages, you go to 210. In every way, we are to make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. In 2.13, he speaks of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 3.4, he says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. In 3.6, whom we poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, 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 Savior. You got all six? Okay. Now, I want want to do that same exercise with you on a completely different phrase that we haven't looked at yet. If you're going to understand the message of Titus, here's the two things you're going to have to fit these things together. These two things have to come in. On the one hand, he is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, as opposed to Lord. He's not denying that he's Lord. He's just not talking about it. But there's a second clue. There's a second refrain to the book of Titus, all right? Listen to this. Tell me if you don't start to notice a theme here in this short little book. It says in verse 8, you might mark this, Titus 1, 8, sorry. He says, he's speaking about what must be true of an overseer, an episkopos, which we come to t- turn into um, elders. He says, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. And there's your phrase, he loves what is good. who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 16, it says that they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Listen to this. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. We are to love what is good. We are to do what is good. And 2, 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. We are to love what is good. We are to do what is good. We are to teach what is good. In 2.7, he says, And everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, serious, and sound of speech. that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. We are to do what is good. Teach what is good. Love what is good. Do what is good. In 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do what is good. Do what is good. Do what is good. 3.1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then in 3.8, he says... And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in case he hasn't made his point yet, he says, finally, in 3.14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Do you think I'm making much out of a molehill, making a mountain out of a molehill? This is real. Do you see that this is, I'm not making this up. This is actually present. Do what is good, 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 do what is good. You must love what is good. You must teach what is good. You must model what is good. You must do what is good. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And so with those, now we got to really think. That's the data pool. We have a letter which has as its overwhelming emphasis, do what is good, do what is good, do what is good, do what is good, but which very intentionally avoids ever calling Jesus Lord, and instead says that he is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior. Put those together. What is happening in the mind of T- Paul as he's writing the letter to Titus? Jesse. So, what we are saying before, it seems like um, people are up there, by the end of the authority of it Okay, so what's going on? This is exactly right. So what he's Paul's urgent need for Titus is that you have got to make this people, this church, this community, must be a righteous people. It's imperative that our people learn to devote themselves, to be eager to, to continually, constantly, always love to do what is good. And he's trying to help them get there. And he knows that if while you do, if you if you say to them, listen, hey. Step up, because Jesus is king, and you better bend the friggin' knee right now. Let's go. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to change anybody's heart. What you're doing, you're teaching people to avoid getting caught. You are, you are motivating people through fear, and it, it doesn't work. It might work for a little while, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the life. And he's trying to help these people. Help these. They do need to bend the knee. They really do. But we're never going to get them there by scaring them that he is Lord. Rather, we must paint a picture for them of his beauty and his love and his grace because he's the Savior. And that's the only thing that will ever change a person's life. Okay? Bianca. Amen. And so he's writing a letter. So Paul is writing a letter to a particular man leading a particular church in a particular city. But y'all, we are Crete. Right? We are Crete. And if we are to be a righteous people, if it's important that, that Don learn to devote himself to doing what is good, if that's true, and it is, then the same function is at play here. That what is going to change your life, is the same thing that changed my life, is not the overbearingness of God but is the love and the mercy it's his kindness that leads us to repentance right and we do have re- we, in, in the other room we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the fear of the Lord we, we do need to fear him we do need to recognize our posture before the one who rightly evaluates us but what we need to know is that the one who could be our judge has become our savior that the snake on the pole right the snake in the sand that could bite and kill became a snake on a pole who himself was killed for us. When, when you get that, when the, when the one who has every right to be your judge instead becomes your savior, it blows up your life, Charlie. Does it not? You can't help it. You can't help it. it changes everything. And that is exactly what, what, what Paul is going after here in Titus. Don?
1: <laughs> yeah, th- this is ultimately <coughs> about the expulsive nature of a new law. Yes. This is about, like, if you wanted to teach this class how to create a seafaring vessel, you would teach us about carpentry and metallurgy. You would show us slides of the sea and how gorgeous
0: and how big and how beautiful it is. That's right. He's a genius at, at motivating people from within. Yes, that's exactly right. So if you, if you didn't hear what Don say if, if, if my job was to, was to compel you people to build a boat to travel across the ocean, I could teach you carpentry, and that might work, but it would be better if I, if I gave you an image of the land beyond the seas that you wanted to get to such that you would build a boat to get there. That's exactly what we're trying to do. What, what, what Paul is trying to do is, is he wants to motivate people to live obedient lives because we must live obedient lives, and more on that in just a minute. But how do you get there? You do not get there through coercion. Coercion works for a little while when somebody's watching, but it will not change your life. The thing that changes us is the mercy and grace of the gospel. And so Paul is just going to double down. He is the Savior, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior. Okay, Jen.
1: I also really want to say that, um,
2: uh, oh, I hate speaking out loud. <laughs> um, that uh, I don't know if a thread. that um, less the Cretans think they can earn their way through goodness.
0: That's right. good. That's right. That's right. Back to- If the, if the Cretans learn, if somebody rolls into town and just teaches them to clean up their act, and they therefore become a self-righteous people. This is, this is, you guys, we constantly live with two grave threats. One is that in some measure we will succeed at whatever low bar we set for ourselves. And then congratulate ourselves. I stuck it in my thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I, right? And we congratulate ourselves with our self-righteousness. Or, as low as we set that bar, we still trip on the way over it. And we are filled with despair. And what Paul is inviting Titus and the Cretans and you into is neither of these failed options. But rather this place where where grace is real, where righteousness is a gift, where he imputes to us full credit. All of the perfections of Jesus credited to us. And under this sea of love and grace... We begin to grow into it, and it becomes real. It becomes an actual, genuine thing for all the world to see. This is what Paul is writing to, what he's inviting. And there's so many, this is a hard book book to excerpt because it's so beautiful. Here's one place where he does it all. Take a look at this. Go to 2.11. Here's the argument all coming together. (laughs) Titus 2.11, he says this. For the grace of God, he could say, you know, the power of God threat of God judgment of God there's all kinds of things that also exist but it's the grace of God that brings salvation that's appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions we tend to think the thing that'll teach you to say no to ungodliness worldly passions is knock it off just knock it right out of your hands stop it right but that's not what he says it's not legalism that teaches us to obey it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. We're still headed for that. We are to be a self-controlled people. We're to be a godly people. We're to live upright lives, but how do we get there? Well, we get there while we're waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. And P.S., did you see that incredibly clear claim to the deity of Christ? Jesus is our great God and Savior. Jesus is God who gave himself for us because he loves us, because he's kind, because he's gracious. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Great news. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What Paul is doing masterfully is he's showing how the gospel of grace does not lead... To licentiousness, it leads to it leads to genuine righteousness because it teaches me to say no to ungodliness. It teaches me to decline all these worldly passions and instead to begin to eagerly desire what is good, which was the plan all along. This, by the way, is though he he frames it in a very particular way throughout the book of Titus. This is the theme of all of Paul's writings. He's saying something like this, and, and endlessly in all of his letters. This is the gospel. I'll, I'll show it to you in Romans. Um, Go to Romans is this fantastic book. And Romans is a book about faith that God imputes righteousness to us on the basis of faith. But look at what he says in verse 5. one five, Romans 1-5. We're going to see the bookends of Romans. He says through. You good? Am I going too fast? Romans 1-5. He says through him, that's Jesus, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to... The obedience that comes from faith. In a book about faith, 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 that we are made righteous not through our obedience, but through our faith. He's like, yeah, 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 but faith produces something. It produces a change. It makes us into an obedient people. He says the same thing at the very end of Romans. Go back, go to Romans 16. He bookends it with this same phrase. In fact, it might be an interesting little exercise to go compare Romans 1 to Romans 16 and see how much he's saying the same. But he says in verse 26... Romans 16, 26, that this gospel, this mystery of the gospel has been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. The Christian life is meant to be a life of faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience. But the crucial thing is that we recognize that our ability to obey does not come because we fear this judgment, but because we're relishing the grace in which we live. Grace teaches us to be a righteous people. And if it's not, here's, here's the thing you got to wonder. If it's not working for you, what's missing? If you find that, I mean, I've been going to church for 25 years, and I'm not a lick different than I was. If there's been no progress, no transformation, no... Quickness, no, I'm, I'm quicker to be generous and I'm slower to be stingy and I'm quicker to be patient and I'm slower to be, you know, angry. If I'm quicker, if there's no transition here, according to Paul, according to the rationality of Titus, what's missing? What's missing? See? It's the Savior part. There's something that you haven't yet clicked. It's what, what, what Paul is saying is when you look at your life and you see the ongoingness of rebellion, the continued love of sin, the, the, the relative insignificance that his glory plays in your life, you probably need to go back to the cross. There's something about his tenderness towards you. The penny hasn't, something got jammed. The gears are stuck. And it, you haven't yet relished. You haven't really considered the enormity of his love towards you. There's something that is missing there. Rocks. Awesome.
1: Tim, you may remember this, but over a decade ago, I think it was Danny Silk.
0: Danny Silk, I don't know that name.
1: It it was, he did the parenting book,
2: and he talked about the phenomena of red trucking. So this would be like a
0: I don't recognize that phrase "red trucking." What does that mean?
1: It's where you're the big bad. You come into the room, and everybody's going to cower to you because if not, you're just going to blast them out.
0: Okay. Yes. Exactly.
1: You're obedient to that person, but you also grow to despise that person.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Still, because I it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big yellow truck. Yeah.
0: It's a wonderful. I think parallel Yeah. Story. What's
1: interesting is as you. For your children, I think you're also then going back in your mind and saying, Why am I not in love with my Savior to the point where I'm
0: completely dead. Amen. Yeah, that's that's exactly and, and the the parallels and there and there should be there should be parallels between parents to their children and the Lord to us, because he dresses himself in the garb of a father, or of a parent. And so we should we should expect to see some of these things are true. And it could flow either way. It could be that you're learning things in your parenting that give you insights into the way that he loves you. Or it could be that you're learning things about the way that He loves you that totally transforms your parenting, right? Both of these phenomena, you know, can, can be in play there. Suzanne, did you want to add anything to that?
2: His illustration: He had this giant yellow construction vehicle and this little red pickup truck, and the giant construction vehicle had like rolled over the top of the red. truck.
0: Okay, and just mashes it up. Destroy it, as opposed to
2: tying strings with your children.
0: Yes. Crushing. Because it's it's grace. That leads us to repentance. This is kindness, for sure. Okay, Bill, did you want to say something?
1: Yeah, this reminds me of Bonhoeffer and his uh, conversations about which comes first, faith or obedience.
0: Yes. And what's, what do you think is the answer? Um, both. Well, yeah. Well, so, well it's, actually, it's actually true. I would say that faith is the, is the prime mover, but faith produces obedience, and then obedience gives us the opportunity to discover more about him which feeds our faith, right? So our lives are not just like snap, snap, but everything is iterative in our life. And as that wheel spins around and around, and I, I trust him, so I'll obey him, and he proves faithful. Well, now I've got more resources available to trust him more, and then he proves faithful. And, it, and then I'm like, okay, and now this should be spinning out is that I'm growing in faith, and I'm growing in obedience as one feeds the other. That's kind of where we want, want to be. Stuart?
1: Yeah, there's sort of, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about that. you talked about you're just stepping in with your authority, stepping in with your authority to you know do this, do this, do this because of this decadent society. You know, I was thinking back to the '60s and early '70s, sort of that drug, free love culture, right? That that led to what followed that. Well, the moral majority kind of followed that, and that didn't work so well because it came in mm-hmm. as uh, an of that where it was obedience, it was look. That's right. You know, and I think that's a good warning for us as the church today because I think you're also seeing this, the society cycle, you know, and I think it's always done this as the Cretans back then, where you have a maybe a, a society you know, that is maybe in decay or whatever relative to you know what Christ would want us, what God would want us to do out of there. Don't
0: go back. That's right. do right. Again,
1: because it's not going to work. That's such a yeah,
0: yeah such a great. So I, I, know, I hope you guys could hear that, Stuart Basically, saying we've we've seen this phenomenon play out even in you know in American evangelicalism in the last I don't know what's the moral majority? 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yeah. So how old am I? So so 40 in the last 40 years. And and the and the the beauty of coercive leadership is that it works for a little while, right? You know this with your children. Sometimes it's just, clean your room, you know, just do it. I just, I hereby coerce you, make it happen, or you don't get to go outside because I can't stand this anymore, right? It works for a little while. And therefore, everything that we do, all, every bad strategy that we ever employ, we employ them because they work, right? But they always have a secondary cost. They always, they always give poor strategies, give all the benefit up front, and then all the cost downstream, in the very beginning, all you can see is the benefit. You just seize that lever and pull it because it just gets you what you need. But, man, downstream effects are often bad. That's what Paul is saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can coerce people into obedience, apparently, for about 30 years, you know. But not, but, well, while you're watching, right, and while you continue to hold the levers of power. All the
1: hypocrisy that got exposed.
0: Right, right. And there's such a, yeah, there's so much of, there's an awful lot that American evangelicals have to be, like, quite embarrassed by right so many places where we have drifted or raced away from the wisdom of scripture so here's the thing we got to stop in just a minute here's what i want you to understand we've been the the, the topic by the way you may not know this well so i'll make it really clear the topic today is obedience what are the essential ingredients for someone to really walk and flourish in christ right we need we need his word in our lives we need to have the spirit of god in our lives we need to have assurance that, we, that we're safe in him all these things we've been talking about Paul is doubling down. It is our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. If Christians are to thrive, if this church is to flourish, we are to be an obedient people. Full stop. We must be. However, we must be very wise and very cautious about how we attempt to produce that reality. For it is not the exercise of coercion that will produce the obedience that Jesus wants. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. It can't. It is rather an abundance of grace, pointing to the cross, the beauty of Christ who is Savior. But and by the way, grace does not just mean I don't really care what you do; just live your life. It's not negligence. It's a cross-centered picture of radical, radical, costly love. The more that we come back to see the beauty of Christ crucified, what that flow, that flows into our lives in a way that it inevitably produce, produces obedience. We must be an obedient people. We will only be an obedient people if our hearts are fixed on the one who gave all for us. He gave himself to redeem us, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If we keep our eyes there, it produces this effect that's good for us, it's good for the world, it ushers in the kingdom. It's crucial that we be an obedient people, but it's crucial that our obedience is driven by love. All right? Make sense? Clears the bell? All right. uh, That's all. We'll see you.